Welcome to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, proudly in collaboration with Brick Studios. I'm Jose Pusella. Join me as I take you on this audio journey with Heath Davis on the making of his new crowdfunded film, Christmas. As always, this is your host with the most weight-to-height ratio gain to perhaps any podcaster to emerge from their lockdown chrysalis in my LJ of Western Sydney. I'm hitting you with a fluffy man-sized installment on this numero cinco of a diary of a creative from Oz to NZ, celebrating individuals and their love of the arts and the careers they're carving out of this love and anything in between. Last week, I had the pleasure of conversing with Angela Blake, one half of the creative pioneering powerhouse responsible for co-founding the International Film Festival with an Aussie flavor, SF3 smartphone Flickfest. This episode finds me in the esteem of another Curtin University alum, in 2012, his short film Transmission, a tonal companion piece for these final hours, was nominated for Best Film at the 2013 AACT Awards and won Best Screenplay. In 2014, his debut feature, These Final Hours, a self-described movie about the Bogan apocalypse, as stated in the Screen Australia media release dated April 22, 2014, had its international premiere at the director's fortnight in Cairns, receiving a standing ovation after its screening. And as noted in cinefestoz.com, to date, he is the first and still only Australian to solely write and direct two exclusively Netflix original films, namely the 2017 film titled 1922, adapted from the Full Dark No Stars collection of four novellas by Stephen King and the follow-up original film Rattlesnake, released in 2019. Thank you for taking the time to join me and welcome Zach Hilditch. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Before I continue, I'll just do some housekeeping. If you enjoyed our last episode as much as Angela Blake enjoys championing grassroots filmmaking through the SF3 Film Festival, then rack focus over to Twitter at DiabetCrowdF1 or to our Facebook page, DiabetCrowdfunded Film. Please also subscribe and reshare the episodes so the momentum for this podcast and Heat's Film Christmas continues to see the light of day, much like Greater Sydney as we finally emerge from our lockdown cocoon. So, Zach, thank you so much for this opportunity. I wanted to start by, you know, looking at your chosen institute of higher learning, being Curtin Uni, where you completed your undergraduate and honors degree in 2014, I believe. Yeah. Can you tell me what was Zach Hilditch, the uni student, like? Um, I um, was the kind of uni student who had um, gone there with no idea how to get into the filmmaking caper, but knew that university was literally my only outlet. Like, where was I going to meet people? Where was I going to get gear from? How do you even begin to, you know, be a teenager with, with lofty dreams in the northern suburbs of Perth wanting to make films, but then you know, having such a low uh, TEE score that you don't even get into uni the first time round, and you realize, oh, you've actually got to work at this. And then <laughs> so I repeated, so I repeated year 12. Luckily, I just scraped in by nine days to do the mature age where you only have to do two subjects, neither of which was a maths or a science, which was my real undoing. So I got to do English and history and I got to do them again, but properly <laughs> because I really, really wanted to go to a uni be a filmmaker. And that was the beginning for me because I was just, I was just hell-bent on getting there, not not knowing anyone, not knowing how it was all going to work out, but I was like, I want to be a writer-director. I have no technical capabilities. I'm not going there to be a DP or an editor. Like, I, I just really, uh, I really was um, uh, a Luddite when it came to all of that stuff. I just wanted to write and direct and find people who could help me do that. And um, the three years at Curtin, you know, you, you, you start navigating things, you start learning as much as possible, but you're also there taking in as much cinema as you possibly can and discovering new cinema over the journey and meeting like-minded people. And luckily, 
you know, I remember when it came to third year, everyone wants to direct their own thing and there's only like six slots, you know, and if you don't, you don't get your thing up, you're doing sound or you're doing production design or you're doing something. And I was like, fuck no. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, it was, it was kind of like Survivor, you know, like we went on this pitching weekend to Rottnest Island and it was Survivor. Like there were alliances wow. being built. There was uh, all sorts of scallywag behavior going on. And um, I managed to get my film across the line. Um, not that, you know, mine was a sure bet, but I just managed to get enough people on board, enough friends on board to, to give me the numbers to make my, my little Amora's Peros ripoff, which was called Fix, about uh, junkies up to scallywag shenanigans in Perth. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the movie uh, for a third-year curtain film turned out quite good. And, um, you know, that sort of helped me sort of... It was the very first film where I felt like I found my voice um, as, like, the kind of filmwork I wanted to be, tackling dark subject matter, um, yeah, you know, t- tackling everyday people, um, and then that sort of segued into going even darker with my honors film there, which is a film called Boxing Day, which was about infanticide, about a mother who who uh, who kidnaps her estranged daughter and kills her, um, which was something that was in the news a lot at the time. Um, mm. Cases like that were just popping up. I, I remember it, it sort of just gripped me. It's like, what was going on in, in someone like that's mind to commit such a thing? So I made another film the following year, got, got to do a fourth year honours. And that one really, really helped me sort of, I guess, um, really say, this is who I am as a filmmaker. This is, this is my, this is my, uh, this is my shtick. This is my taste. This is my sensibilities. This is what I want to do. And um, yeah, so that was the university experience. And it was out into the big bad world trying to, trying to make stuff. That's fantastic. And I, look, I understand you were a classmate uh, or maybe it's other way around. Ben Young was a classmate um, as well. I know uh, Grant a few years later, but um, do, were there any times where you and Ben collaborated as well um, on any projects or was it purely just some subjects at uni? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was crazy. Like We were in the very first film class together. And, um, yeah, we, um, you know, he was also an actor at the time. So he was actually in some of my exercises, you know. So right. that's how that's how. OG, we go with each other. Yeah. Um, no, it, it's been really great um, seeing Ben, you know, just 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 take off the way he has. Um, but there was a whole cavalcade of people like, yeah, Grant Spatori was, I think, a year or two below me. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my wife was in his um, class. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's all very ancestral when it comes to church. <laughs> I was going to say, keep it in the family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. The, so one thing I also read is that you returned for a time as a sessional tutor within the university's department of film, TV, and screen arts, was there a contemplation maybe for you to go down the teaching path at some point? Never, never. No, I, um, the great thing about being a tutor there, being a sessional with like the first and second years, um, you know, it's like, it's like club med, like you're dealing with mostly kids who want to be there. Like I was when I was in first year, you know, so you're, but also there's the kids who are still trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow mm-hmm. up. And you don't really have time for those kids, but the kids who really, you could tell were like, fuck, I want to make film or fuck. I want to be in TV. It's like, great. I'm going to give you all my time. I did that for like maybe three and a half years. So like wow. probably seven, seven semesters in a row. And it was very well paid. Um, once you had ironed out the kinks of the rinse and repeat nature of that course, <laughs> Boy, did I just hang out a lot in the corridor, just drinking coffee with the equipment store guy and, you know, just shooting the shit. It was was like, it was the easiest job of my life, but also rewarding in a way that 
any of those kids that would come up to me and ask me anything about like what I was doing and, and how you do make that next step. Not that I'd even made these final hours yet, mm. but my time there ended with getting these final hours kind of finance. And that was, yes. the, that was the end of the end of the hurrah. It was like, okay, it's been great. Also, I really could only do seven semesters in a row. I, that rinse and repeat as, as easy as it got. It also, I just couldn't face doing another one. I was kind of done. Um, and um, yeah, but you know, Curtin's being very good to me. Very good to me. <laughs> The thing I found interesting is, I, I forget in which article I was reading it, is obviously probably after that time and then before, I'm going to guess these final hours, you can correct me if this is wrong, you had worked at your father's biscuit-making business. Uh, it's half true. I um, After high school and during high school, I, I, I worked with my dad uh, installing displays in like a mall here called Garden City Shopping Centre. Yes, uh, yes. I did that. Um, I did that with him like for a good six or seven years. Then I got a biscuit delivery job uh, after that. And then I started working at Curtin. So it was like always piggybacking off one one long stint to the next while, you know, yeah, just just high pressure cleaning Monday to Friday at the same shopping center. Like uh, at one point, I was just living at that shopping center, uh, kind of like mall rat sort of scenario. <laughs> you know? um, but uh, you know, just any shit kicking job I could to um, to just keep writing short films, writing feature films, making zero budget features, mm-hmm. getting some of them financed, getting some short money, not getting short money, just applying. You know, I had my fingers in so many pies in that decade uh, after uni just trying to get that first properly funded film up, which ended up being these final hours. Oh, but yeah, like I never really went down an ad path or a, a music video path, mm. which is weird because I love music videos and I grew up on them, but um, I never, I never really went down that path, which is kind of what you do here in Perth. And I guess yes. anywhere, like you go down to commercials and the music video, I, I would rather be a shit kicker and then um, find out how I can navigate my time when I wasn't being a shit kicker doing it you know, job I didn't really dig um, to just focus on writing, just to focus on my craft, to just make shit myself, just to do stuff for free, just just do it that way. Um, that was my real sort of um, way of learning, uh, furthering my understanding of cinema. Um, I just uh, didn't really want to play the, um, you know, everyone's pitching for this one little pot of the pie with this commercial. I just had no interest. I would just rather spend that time for no money, just making a really cool short or something like that. Look, I appreciate what you're saying because it's exactly right. There's no one way, one path to get into the industry. In an interview, May 2020 with If Magazine, uh, I read that you developed your passion for genre films through watching iconic horror videos, the likes of John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. Um, what I wanted to know is if you can recall the first film you saw in a cinema and is there a particular image or scene from that film that still echoes in your memory to this day? I was really lucky and it's chicken in the egg scenario because my mum was a massive cinephile. Um, you know, she loved pop culture. She loved TV shows. TV was always on. She loved movies, like loved movies. So that really rubbed off on me and um, and my sister. And um you know, so there was just always a part of our lives and just going down to the video shop and, you know, watching things that no kid should be allowed to, you know, the, the, the age that I watched Nightmare on Elm Street and, uh, and, and Werewolf in London and these things, like, it, it's, it's almost child abuse, you know. It's like, <laughs> what the fuck was she thinking letting me watch that? But I was just consumed by it, you know, like. I'd say she was just a cool mom. That's what I would say. <laughs> yeah, she was a cool mom. Just watching Twilight Zone late at nine, just scaring the shit out of me. That that theme song, like, just so terrified. Like Evil Dead. Like, 
I was just allowed to take out a bunch of stuff. Uh, and, and, and she was more than happy. We, we used it as, as a library rather than being a bunch of readers. Like we were a bunch, bunch of watchers and uh, we were always at the video shop and always taking out our, you know, seven weeklies for $7 or whatever it was. I remember those days. Um, to answer your question uh, more clearly, it was a really interesting one, given how horrific some of the things I was allowed to watch were, bless her cotton socks. <laughs> the first film that she took me to, I remember, was Ginger Megs. Talk about a wholesome right. uh, kids' film. Yeah. Now, I I had, like, burnt images in my head of, like, the red-haired kid that is Ginger Megs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember exactly this, where the cinema was, but that was the first film that she took me to. And, um, yeah, but I, I, I just have, like, so many little little flashback memories of, like, you know, she took us to see Superman uh, three or four, the one with the people who were stuck behind the glass, the, <laughs> the bad guys who were then right, sent right. off into space. I think that was three or four where Superman has to fight himself. It was so mind-blowing. Like, yeah, she really was a cool mom. She, uh, she did uh, really, really instilled some uh, cinema into me uh, at a very early age. That's beautiful. What is it about this genre? And, you know, in this case, we'll talk about the disaster genre that draws you back time and time again to explore the characters that you put into these worlds. Yeah, well, I just, um, you know, there was a time where, um, you know, genre was such a dirty word in Australia, you know, the early, the early noughties. And, you know, back when the Screen Australian Screamers had so much money and the idea was you had to make a lantana or you had to make a film that don't be too genre. It's going to be a, an awesome kitchen sink drama that gets into Khan or fuck you. you know? It felt like, oh, shit, we've all got to do one of those now. And I kind of steered away from genre yes. ultimately to then come to these final hours, which is the perfect smashing together of, you know, and don't get me wrong, I love kitchen sink dramas. It was like, how can I tell uh, a, a movie about both worlds and that and those are the kind of films that really do interest me like you know um i guess you could term it elevated genre but you know anything from like just 28 days later Mm -hmm. um you know just ordinary people caught in extraordinary situations those are my favorite kind of genre films and um you know uh these final hours is exactly that it was my attempt to tell a story like that films that had inspired me um you know to really go oh wow you can make you know genre films but it's also like a it is a very arty very art yes. house very satisfying very personal story and isn't that amazing when those things get smashed together and um yeah so that was really um you know, my attempt to sort of tell uh, what happens if uh, if uh, Paper Moon had sex with 28 Days Later, you know, it was kind of <laughs> like that's, that's these final hours. <laughs> I love it. I love that explanation. And look, there are, there are a plethora of interviews uh, and discussions documented on the international success garnered in your apocalyptic debut feature, These Final Hours. So don't feel that I'm purposely avoiding questions, just there's so much that's been discussed. So I really just wanted to touch on one element, the emotional intensity that you know you achieved with the then twelve-year-old. Um, is it pronounced? Is her name Angeri Rice or Angari? Angari Rice. My apologies. Who played Rose? Um, and obviously Nathan Phillips, aka James. It was so raw and powerful. I mean, for me, looking back, it it speaks to your skill as a director with the actors. But I think it's also understanding the importance of being able to foster an environment of nurture. So I just wanted to know what type of support was provided or encouraged on set so she could recharge emotionally to get into that necessary headspace for her on-screen character. Yeah, I mean, she has the best stage parents on earth, the Rices. Um, and she's got an amazing sister, y- younger sister as well. Um, 
uh, just a tight knit family. And it all started there. It was like lightning in a bottle. Like when we made transmission, you know, we discovered Anne Gary. She had done mm. a commercial up until that point. And, um, you know, it was like chalk and cheese, the girls that came through, because we saw every girl in W that we could. She was the very first one that walked through the door. Right. And I, and I already knew that she had done the commercial line sitting. I was like, you know, just pretty little blonde girl. Let's see what she's got. And just from the first second, you know, like just the, she, you know, just the X factor, just the chops. Like she could hold her own in a scene with all the other dudes we were auditioning for that short film. And um, I was like, well, this is a full blown conclusion. It was just, a, it was just great to have actually done that as our litmus test mm. for these final hours. A year later, it was like, of course, the role is yours. You know, and when I wrote these files, it wasn't necessarily thinking of any girl, but when these two things collided, it was like, well, of course, we'd like to bring you along to the, to the big dance now. So that was awesome, me and her already having a relationship sorts um, when it came to director-actor. Um, then it was finding, you know, my James for these final hours, and I never in a million years thought it would be Nathan Phillips. I mean, I'd never met him in my life. We, again, we looked at every dude. And I just wanted, you know, a bricklayer who could handle himself, you know, that sort of guy, that sort of rough around the edges, quote unquote, Bogan, who can offer so much more, you know, on that last day and has some real shit going on um, where it looks, you know, can be deceiving. And his, 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 he just blew me away with his, his first tape, his audition. I got him to do a couple more and then we started talking and I was just like, well, fuck me. Like, it, it's you, Nathan. Like, like, and I didn't expect when he rocked up to him to be as, like, physically big as he was as well. Like, he was really transforming his body from everything we had seen with him in cinema uh, and, and TV. When he arrived, he looked like a superhero. He looked like he was right. walking into a Marvel film, not my film. But then that it's in itself also does really help add a certain energy and, mm. and, and level to who this guy was and just physically um, him filling in a, in a lot of the blanks in, in such a short amount of time in the 90-minute runtime of, of who this guy was. And, um, you know, he really was that bloke who could handle himself if he needed to, but he also had a, you know, heart of gold at the end of the day and was quite a sensitive soul. And uh, it was lightning in a bottle. Like, you know, the fact that Angari existed and was born when she was and happened to be in Perth. And, you know, that's where she was living at the time. And uh, and then Nathan, like, just the two of them collide. And then he was just so great with her, you know, just like, he was, he's just like a big kid, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he would keep her keep her laughing, keep her, keep her entertained between takes, you know, the, the dreaded setup time. And then this camera's down, just sit in that car for five more minutes. I promise we'll get you going. Like just if you, if you had a guy who was very standoffish with, with kids or a bit of a dick like that, like it would have been a disaster, but you know, he, he was just there for us and me and her and the, the whole film. And like, he just, he obviously just loved the project. Like he just threw himself at it. Um, and he got an extra tattoo just for the role, this feather on the back of his arm, because he knew how much steady can there was going to be behind him. So he, you know, he even got a tap for the film. So he, um, he, he was committed, but the two of them, yeah, it was just, I didn't really have to do much. It was just spending as much playtime in pre-production as we could, just me and the two of them and just, getting them to know each other because they were just going to be flung in at, at, at the deep end. And, you know, these Australian films, 25-day shoot, 25-day pre, well, mm. five-week pre, you have no time for anything. You barely have time to rehearse. So um, you're lucky when your actors finally arrive, you get to go up for a coffee with them, you know, and you, or maybe you're doing stuff at night. But when, when it's a kid, like, you, your time's really limited, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was just um, throwing everyone in at the deep end to a, to a certain degree. 
what a champion, Nathan, based on what you're saying. That's brilliant. The Look, the, actually, the last question I want to ask is if you can recall, and hopefully you still can, the sensation of receiving the standing ovation at Cairns after the screening for these final hours. Now, did you allow yourself to drink in that energy or was it just too surreal? Uh, it was uh, It was everything. It was surreal. It was stressful. Even though you're getting applauded the next day you know variety and the holly reporter are shitting Mm. on you so (laughs) you know it's like to each their own you just can't please everybody you know and the movie did very well for me it was very well received um critically and um and from punters alike Uh, and it still holds up i still meet people who still talk about like it and the effect it had on them but you know you're in that bubble that pressure cooker bubble at Khan, and you know it, your your time can be ruined ruined in an absolute instant with that one review but that's that's the game you know that's the game you throw yourself into uh so um you know it was uh it was everything but just i didn't really care about any negative uh press that we got because i was in fucking Khan, you know <laughs> yes. this guy from this guy from gira wayne made a movie that got into the Khan film festival so I'd already won, you know, I could die a happy man. And uh, it was, you know, we left everything out there on the field with that movie. Like we, we edited it to an inch of its life. It was made 10 times over in post. We made sure we were telling it exactly the right way. And we knew that um, what we were putting out to the world was, was it like, that's the movie. And then you just got to yeah. move. It's not, no longer yours anyway. You know, you just got to mm-hmm. move on and, and on to the next one. Um so no, the I just have many, many fond memories of that whole experience. And then to cap it off with with Khan and you know, then we got to go to Sitchies and then we yes. won won the age the age award at MIF. You know, it was just a great traveling road show. Um yeah, just the amount of planes I got on with that film. Remember planes and flying to festivals? Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm just so glad I got to experience that. And my heart breaks for all these filmmakers now, well for everyone, but for these filmmakers, the me. The me then, now, who has just done that, done there these final hours, and they can't fucking even go anywhere, you know. And like the festival isn't going to be the same, even if it's running, and it's just heartbreaking. It's just horrible, and I'm just so blessed that um, I got I I got in when the going was good. You were mentioning moving on because from that point and that bubble you were kind of in. How long thereafter? would the you know infamous water bottle tour have started because um, i've always been curious about that term which obviously is a lot of just meet and greets but i wanted to know what was your experience on that and was there any expectations from yourself with regard to these encounters i i was just like the ongoing surreal next step of it all like my first water bottle tour was even before khan because once your film gets into khan you know, people are interested in you. But I'd already been talking to this uh, manager, Josh Kesselman from Throughline, um, you know, after he saw Transmission and he was aware mm-hmm. that we were even making uh, these file hours. So I was talking to that guy for a year, just wondering, like, what the hell is a manager doing? Um, but after he finally saw these file hours, he said, please let me represent you. I, I, I'd love to get you out here. Let's get you repped and let's get you some project going. And so he, he, Got, he got me out there and set me out of my way. I did my first water bottle tour where you're doing three or four meetings a day. And, um, you know, that was, uh, 
pretty sure that was pre-Uber. So you're driving everywhere in LA. Right. So it was very stressful. Um, but uh, it was just like, again, it was like in Willy Wonka's Wonderland. You're like, okay, this now. I'm doing this thing now. And every meeting goes amazingly. You know, it's like no one, you never have a bad meeting, but then also no one ever makes you think. You, know? <laughs> you walk out of that one going, well, that thing's definitely going ahead. I wonder when they're going to call back. And then they don't. It's like, no one wants to have a bad meeting over there. So you start realizing that after a few of your few of your tours. Um, but I've just come to realize that as a writer director, if you're not self-generating, then what are you even doing going over there, praying that that golden script that is just going to click with you is even allowed to be yours? You know, it's mm. very rare. It's like if you're a writer director, you've got to self-generate and then you go over there and then you pitch your wares that way. It's the only way to get things done in these meetings you're, or else you're just sitting there talking about the weather and they're telling you all the things they're doing and you then got to tell them what you want to be doing and uh unless you can offer them something then don't even take the meeting if you're a writer director because you've got to it's all about self-generating your, your your stuff and um luckily i can do that um so yeah so then that's when you then buy another lottery ticket and off you go and many projects have come and gone by the wayside and then some of them have actually taken so it it is a lottery but you know you've got to you've got to you've got to got to make your own luck happen as well so um yeah it's been it's been quite the ride it's very sound advice and invaluable to anyone who you know hopefully has the opportunity to do that that you need to have a follow-up as you're mentioning i read that sometime in may 2014 you took part in a roundtable discussion um, organized by the British Council, Creative England and Screen International to discuss how the industry can best support new talent. Um, firstly, is that accurate? <laughs> because I wasn't able to view the article. So I don't want to throw a question. You're going to go, that didn't happen. And we'll just throw it out. Uh, that was in Cannes. Yeah, it must have been in Cannes. I'd say because it was, it was May yeah. 2014. And so what I wanted to know is, yeah. how did you get involved in that? Um, and what were the takeaways from that discussion? Oh boy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I remember now there was a quite a large round table and I kind of felt like the odd one out wondering, I wonder what I'm doing. It was a very, uh, mixed bag of people. Um, I can barely remember what I gave to that, um, discussion, but I think maybe I talked about the importance for these final hours, happening um was a screen australia run initiative called springboard which is how we made um transmission um mm -hmm. and then developed the screenplay for these final hours without that uh, i do wonder what would have ever happened to that project we were the poster children for the very inaugural springboard which only ran for five years a few of the features were made out of it but um you know we did absolutely everything that they intended that um initiative to do and uh it's a shame that it doesn't run any run anymore i think they only had a five-year time stamp on it anyway but um to be a part of the first one and to not only make a short that did well and helped us discover angari but then it also we developed the shit out of these files through that same uh workshop um and got it into shape to then get it financed um i think i probably focused on that given that that was all i really had to offer mm -hmm. to um, the table in terms of you know the governing bodies here in australia look and you know, you may just have said, look, I've not thought about this any further up, up until this point. But if you can recall from the discussions broached or at least what you contributed, do you think that that it didn't fall on deaf ears or that in some way it helped to affect some change in the way the industry supports new talent today? Uh, I just think it's much harder now. And again, I'm so grateful for getting in when the going was good, when there was money to run 
this initiative and we're going to whisk you away to this island and help develop your script with these with these curators it that's all kind of gone it is like there's just every year it just seems there's less and less money mm-hmm. and um the halcyon days of like doing indivisions which i took a few projects through that then died in the ass um i just look back at the money the the lavish dinners the awesome camp you know that you're kind of on like the six-day camp with all these other cool filmmakers it was just so fun but i think that's kind of over (laughs) like like Mm -hmm. great films did come out of those those kinds of things like your indivisions and your springboards but um but yeah, I just, you know, I, I just read more and more whenever I see articles pop up, the old uh, cinema is dead, the, this, yeah. the ABC's lost this amount of money now, and now Screen Australia's lost this much money and more slashes. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, was there a, was there a great boom back in the early 2010s, um, you know, late, late noughties. Um, that seemed to be the peak time of like, mm. just going for it and, and, and being nurtured and, but um, but it really was it was Springboard that I felt because I'd done a bunch of them, but it was Springboard, and we took the right project at the right time, and all the planets aligned for us. Um, it was great because I I I'd been through other things like it and had a really not very great sound project that could withstand fire and brimstone. When we did Springboard, we did have one finally, and it was just great <laughs> seeing it get better, not worse, and um, that was very um very heartening to to finally feel like you're doing good <laughs> instead of doing yet another one of these works. That's where you're like, ah, shit, this is just proving how fucked my idea is. And it doesn't really have legs. I'm glad it did because, you know, it allowed you then to, I guess, not the engagement was the word I'm looking for. How the introduction was made with um, Ross M. Dinnerstein. Um, now, I don't know if you met um, them during one of the water bottle tours, but in the end, I know that they managed the production of the 2017 Netflix um, starring Thomas Jane, 1922. What was surreal to me, because I was actually listening last night to the commentary cast um, podcast that you had done um, with Grant and you guys were just doing kind of a live director's commentary. And just to hear that, you know, you wrote it on spec in six months. Of course, we're talking about here, the adaptation 1922, then sent it off, not even knowing if King was going to give you a blessing, which you end up getting, which is just fantastic. And I guess that then was sufficient for Ross to kind of go, we can try to get traction with this and get it greenlit. You know, and I I heard that Netflix were very accommodating to you, but I was curious to know how much creative control did they give you in the edit? They were amazing in the edit. Uh, Ross flew out from LA for five days towards the end of the edit to put his producer hat on and put his two cents in. Um, but when it came to Netflix, um, you know, Ian Brick, who now has an entire, you know, staff. This is when they were still in their old building and, you know, were starting to greenlight a lot of things. Like he just didn't, I don't think Ian had a lot of time, but he trusted Ross um, and he really liked these final hours. So he kind of just handed us the keys and um, it was amazing. Like I think Ian had like two or three notes. Stephen King himself had like maybe one note and uh, we really were just given carte blanche to just make that movie. Ross came in and really put his producer's hat on and like just gave us the the stern talking to about like why this was dragging and this and not understanding this and just that extra set of eyes. Um, but that was a great robust process, just like like a cage fight for five days. And and then he flew back to LA, you know, and and it was great because when he got on the plane, we knew that we had something now. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really just Ross just really came in and just tried to 
get it as short as possible because um, I think we were running at about two hours and we ended up cutting like maybe 20, 20 minutes out of it or something like that yes. through that five-day process and just asking the brutal questions that needed to be to be asked that at that late stage. But the Netflix were just awesome on, on that film. Like they um, they just let us go and they uh, I think they also just really liked what they were seeing. So, you know, it, it, it comes down to King though, who I, I think I said in that podcast, he he already wrote a movie to me, you know, it was just so cinematic what I read mm. that all I had to do was just, yeah, this is my first adaptation. At least I've got a very, very, very well-written movie to adapt, you know, as my first go at this. Because to me, it was just already so cinematic. I had to maneuver some things around, but, you know, yeah, it was just trying to do, um, be as faithful to the book as possible and what, and, and then the feeling that, and the mood that King was trying to evoke um, with his story. It's a, I absolutely love the film and I just wanted to grab some of it. So I don't know if you've listened to uh, the Kingcast podcast. Okay. So, you know, those guys, fantastic. Yeah. And the other day I actually tweeted out to him and then said, look, when are you guys going to have Zach to talk about 1922? Anyway, the point was, I go, you still haven't had one with this, with this Aussie who has done this film. And they actually tweeted back. We'd love to talk to that dude. Absolutely. 1922 rules. If you, so they well, pretty you much go. want you on their <laughs> podcast and like I would say you should get on it too just because you know I think it'd be fantastic to have their because their angle is always from King you know I'm talking about someone else's podcast on here but I love their stuff and you know that's it I'll leave the introductions now for you to follow up because I'm sure you've got a way to get through to um Eric and Scott Wampler yeah it's weird because I I don't know what they look like but but I, I have I have listened to the podcast but Scott, I swear, I swear Scott actually introduced the film at Fantastic Fest, you know, because he's very in that Austin Fantastic yes, Fest that's world. Right. I'm pretty sure, because his voice was just so familiar. I, like, I'm pretty sure he's the dude who conducted the Q&A in the, and, and introed the film. Um, and I knew he was a fan of it back then, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm certain that's the same dude. Well, they're but, super fans and uh, I'm sure you've got a way to get out to them because I'm just, I'm just bringing that, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> look you're just happy to be out of lockdown oh <laughs> uh, yeah exactly <laughs> look and uh, not unlike a snake biting its own tail we finally arrive at rattlesnake which in 2019 had its premiere at the austin film festival ahead of its worldwide release on netflix um and you've gone on record many times about how beneficial the disaster genre can be in helping one prepare for or process real life and i you know concur with that moreover i always feel there's an inbuilt cathartic quality for the writer in this genre and hopefully the audience too should they connect with the character's emotional journey so for the uninitiated could you recap your experience with writing the story of rattlesnake um, and how it was tied into the impending birth of your first son or first child sorry at the time yeah i um i always for, like, for a few years i had the uh, just the concept of um of the gimmick of the ruse of a, a woman um you know, who, who's so desperate when her child is like bitten by something and, and, and makes a pact with a quote unquote devil or, 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 or a spirit in a very remote setting. But then the, but then the, the thing she didn't realize was that, well, now her soul is being protected. So now you've got to take the soul. And she's like, what? Yes. And that's the record scratch. Just that very simple Twilight zone kind of premise I had in my head for a few years, didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and then it was after, um, it was after 1922, I, 
I never thought my next film would be Rattlesnake. Like me and Ross were like full um, full hog on a John Grisham movie called um, The Confession, which is about a serial killer and a priest who go on this road trip to find a body. And it was amazing. It wasn't a courtroom drama at all. And I was like, this is Grisham. Mm. I don't really care for courtroom dramas, but this is yeah. great. And I wrote that one on spec. I did another 1922 and we took it to Netflix and ultimately it didn't get up. And when they said no by then, it really was a, one of those cases of, oh, when Netflix do say no, good luck to you. Because we really we had a lot of act attraction on that one, but we just couldn't get it up. And then we lost the rights. Um, so I thought that was absolutely going to be my follow-up to 1922. It's like, King Grisham, bang, I'll be the literary guy. <laughs> when that didn't happen, when that didn't happen, you know, it was kind of very disappointing. Um, and uh, that, I was at the gym and, you know, our, 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 our first child was, I think, weeks or months away a few weeks really from being born i was at the gym and i finally it finally clicks like with rattlesnake like how to make it all work like like mm. exactly how simple i could make it so i kind of went home that day and i just smashed out almost a first draft uh maybe did a, another draft on that send that to ross and just said look i'll give you the exclusive on this one you know we'll probably go out a bit wider with it but you know here it is if you dig it he read it and he goes well this is great this is in your wheelhouse like let's take it to ian um and like i'm not shitting you <laughs> literally that thing was greenlit within like weeks of writing it. like wow. like talk about fast like 1922 felt kind of fast but it was also based on you know, pretty solid uh, movie. Mm. This, it was just like, we're up to the races. They're making a movie. Like, what the fuck? We're going to New Mexico now. And now our child is born. And okay. So, so we took our, our then uh, five or six month old son to New Mexico. And, and we made that. And um, you, again, you just never know how things, are, where your destiny is going to take, you know, and, and what's going to get up and what isn't going to get up. And, um, you know, so it was a very fast process. And um, that energy on the, that energy of having to get that script written because I knew that by the time our son was born, my brain was going to be marshing and, and, and it actually getting, and that energy and that unrelenting nature of the film, actually the thing that, that people were reading on Netflix and going, yes, this, we can make this. Uh, it all sort of tied together. And then also just that foreboding idea of like, you know, uh, fatherhood motherhood children like protecting them yeah. <laughs> what am i doing like that uh, anxiety is also completely flung into that movie and um you know it, it is just a real love letter to like the twilight zone like like it's like an elongated twilight zone episode that um exists in its own little very specific <laughs> niche um and uh yeah that was what the, the follow-up was and um yeah what can I say? <laughs> I loved the ambiguity um, at the end of it. And obviously, you know, we can talk off screen about what I think the ending is. <laughs> but <laughs> look, and speaking of moving on to next things, anything that you could tease? I've uh, sort of busied myself on other things. Okay. Um, other things that are hopefully getting much closer now. Um, things that I would love to talk about, uh, but I don't want to jinx. Yeah, that's understandable. How potentially close they are. Because I'm, yeah, but I'd love to jump on again and talk to you once one of them uh, is happening. Oh, that would be I awesome. Would, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely appreciate that. So thank you very much. And look, because that was obviously my last question. Um, so I guess that's a, a great way to end on this just massive tease that there are a lot of wheels spinning. And hopefully, I would definitely appreciate you coming back on. 
So thank you so much for indulging me with your time today. And with these questions, I really hope they went to unbearable. No, that was great, man. It was a uh, great chatting to you. And yeah, happy to jump on anytime, hopefully with some, with some, with some, some news to reveal. <laughs> I'd love it. I'd love it. Look, and to our audience streaming this into their ears from wherever you sit across Australia and beyond, I hope you've enjoyed this powwow with Zach as much as I really have. And I wish you longevity within the industry, sir. And the best of luck for your, I was going to say next, but for the several cinematic undertakings and to everyone else until next time. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film. Subscribe to hear all future episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. For more info, please visit Diary of a Crowdfunded Film on Facebook.